and welcome to episode 834 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. Today we're doing our White Sox preview podcast. So later in the show, George Bissell will talk to Dan Hayes, who covers the White Sox for CSN Chicago. But we are talking to the author of the BP annual essay for the White Sox and a longtime BaseballPerspectus.com writer, RJ Anderson. Hello, RJ. Hey, y'all. So as you detailed in your essay, the White Sox have a position player problem, or at least they have had one. They've had trouble developing them. They've had trouble having them on the 2015 team, which was very short on offense and position players. Can you kind of go over the history of the White Sox not developing good hitters? Yeah, sure. It basically dates back, I would say, more than a decade. And a statistic that Ethan Spalding of, I believe he's a prospectus intern now, but of the Catbird seat uh, put out there was that Gordon Beckham as the most wins above replacement player of any uh, White Sox draftee since it's like 2003 or something. Uh-huh. Anyway, as we all know, Beckham is a pretty bad player. So that's one of those ominous signs, one of those ominous statistics about this. Uh, when you look at the roster, you know, they've had success with homegrown pitchers or with minor league free agents or however you, you go out and acquire them. But that hasn't been the case with hitters. And, I mean, just try and think about a White Sox hitter who has come through that system and actually flourished in the majors, and it's hard to do. You know, you have to go back beyond even the Ozzie Guillen era, I believe, to find one who succeeded. So it's been a long, long time since the White Sox drafted and developed a legitimate big league position player. I'd like to think that when you say the Ozzie Guillen era, you mean the Ozzie Guillen playing era. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Uh, it goes quite that far back, but I wish. That would make a great story, wouldn't it? So this is actually exactly what we all used to say about the Giants. They were like the the kings of the no developed hitter fun fact like where for like 20 years they their best position player that they developed was like Pedro Feliz or Bill Miller and then the Giants completely turned it around and uh, now they've developed this like incredible core and and I don't know like there's so much noise and all this stuff that I don't know if the Giants were actually bad or if they were just unlucky I don't know if they weren't investing I don't know if they've turned things around or if they've just gotten lucky so uh, with the White Sox, we're still on sort of stage one of this analysis. And so I'm wondering if you see any explanation for this in the way that they either develop players or the way that they pursue them that might explain why they would have lower than expected yields. It seems like they focus on toolsy players a lot. And that's not a bad strategy, but it is a high variance strategy. So when you take a Jared Mitchell, you know, he was supposed to be a toolsy college player. Well, he hasn't done anything. He's not even with them anymore and didn't reach the majors with them because, well, he busted. You know, you can't always project what a tool the hitter is going to do against professional hitting, uh, excuse me, against professional pitching. You know, the breaking balls are better and the command's better and so on and so forth. So I would say it's almost like the Rays' recent drought where they went out and they drafted a lot, they drafted a lot of tool players, a lot of high school players, and you see a lot of variance in that. And when it works, it really works. You get your superstars or at least star quality players. But when it doesn't work, we kind of have to have these segments where we ask, what's wrong with the draft class? So I would say it's probably mostly luck. And, you know, some team out of 30 is going to have this kind of drought. 
but maybe you know maybe there is something to it that fails them when it comes to development or even scouting. And after park adjustments, the White Sox had the worst offense in the American League last year, and to some extent that was foreseeable. There were some positions where they went into the year with without a good player, and it was not at all a surprise that they didn't end up performing. So they've tried to fix that, or they've tried to acquire some players. They've made some trades. They've made some signings. Do you think they have done enough to correct the offensive failings of the 2015 team? I like a lot of what they did. You know, I like getting Todd Frazier. I like getting Brett Lawry. problem I have is that they didn't go far enough, in my opinion. We kept expecting, well, I kept expecting them to go out there and get Dexter Fowler or maybe play for Justin Upton or Alex Gordon. I didn't really expect them to be players for Jason Hayward. And, you know, to end up with Austin Jackson, that's kind of, you know, I consider that a, it's just an underperformance or a failure considering what they did the rest of the offseason to this point. They went out there and they got some very good hitters, or at least, you know, Todd Frazier's a very good hitter. They got a league average hitter in Lowry, a Lowry, excuse me. But to just kind of wind up with Austin Jackson, who couldn't hit enough for the Mariners, you know, it seems like they didn't go far enough, in my opinion. They'll be uh, improved over last year's offense, but they're not as good as they could have been if they would have spent more resources, which in their case means money. <laughs> In left field, they're still going with Melky Cabrera or, or Avi Garcia, and both of those guys were sub-replacement players last year. Maybe not so foreseeable as some of their other position player failures on last year's team, but both were very bad. Do you think one of them has a better chance than the other to not be bad this year? I would take Melky of those two, because I've seen Melky have a horrible season or have a substandard season and then come back and be a good hitter again. Uh, with Garcia, you know, this is, what, the third year he's been there, and, you know, what has he improved upon? He's still a free-singing hacker. Uh, the power production hasn't been consistent. Now, he's, you know, he's fun to watch in the sense that he's a big guy who runs pretty well, and, you know, the Miguel Cabrera comparisons were fun for a few minutes, but, you know, he seems like the type, I could see him going the route of uh, Dan Vecieto and getting released or non-tendered, whatever, route they choose to go with that and then you know just kind of disappearing because you know while it's fun to dream on the tools eventually it has to lead to production and he is i believe like a couple months away from turning 25 which is about the time we start talking about potential and past tense so of those two i would lean towards milky being the better hitter this season that was pretty ice cold vc8 reference <laughs> if you <laughs> If you've been following the VC8 offseason on Effectively Wild, not nice. Brett Laurie, uh, who you mentioned, I wanted to know what your take is on him. Every, I guess, in a sense, we're all kind of like Pakoda, where we all have long memories, but you know, there's a point where we think about the uh, long forgotten past as being too far away to be relevant, uh, and we focus on the future. And I feel like last year when Billy Bean traded for him we could still say well it wasn't that long ago that he was a a really exceptional player and maybe you know he's aging back into it who knows and then he had a you know a pretty pretty mediocre age 25 season that still leaves some years where he might grow and it's again not like it's a thousand years ago that he was good but did last year really kind of crush the dream on his upside i would say it probably did crush the dream on his upside but you know, you look at him, and he's been a league average or better hitter in the last four seasons. 
and the season he missed was just by a few points of true average. So you move him to second base where he's athletic enough to hopefully make that work. And you look at the positional, you know, the statistics by position, and he's going to be a above-average hitter if he does what he's done the last few seasons at second base, and that would not have been true at third base. So, yeah, we might be moving past the idea of Laurie as an all-star caliber player, and I guess that's a disappointment, as you said, how he started his career. But I think getting an average hitter at second base is something the White Sox failed to do since what, Tadahide Taguchi? Uh, I'm guessing maybe they had a fluke year two in there, but you know their second base production has been miserable since Ray Durham was traded. So I think they'll settle for a decent glove and a decent bat, even if it's not as sexy as it could have been, you know, as we thought it could have been a couple years ago. Do you have a favorite move of their moves this offseason? And, or if you don't want to answer that, uh, were you surprised by the uh, kind of how slight the return on uh, Lori was? I was surprised in the sense that I figured the A's would hold on to him because that's a team that usually, you know, they kind of, I don't want to say they ignore the industry stuff, but if you're going to pick a couple of teams that would ignore that and just roll with them instead of taking, you know, what looks like a pretty poor package, I would put the A's on that list. Um, so I guess that's one of my favorite moves for the White Sox. But I really like the Frazier deal too. Now, he kind of fits into that lineup because he's a little hacky. He's got, you know, good raw right-handed power. But you look at what they gave up. I'm not a Micah Johnson fan. I don't believe he was you – know, he's like 25 already. He's just barely younger than Brett Lowry. So, you know, what is he? Is he just going to be – he can't really play second base that well. So is he an outfielder? And is he going to hit? And I just have a lot of questions about him. You know, Trace Thompson, I think if he would have said he becomes a fourth outfielder, maybe a second division starter, he'd be okay. Well, we'll trade that for – Todd Frazier, and then you know they gave up Frankie Montas as well. And while he's interesting, I think that's just a slam dunk deal for the White Sox, especially with this core. Because you know you look at that core; they have Sale, they have uh, Rodon, they have Quintanilla, they have Abreu. I mean, that's that's a pretty good core. I know you're not going to get a better core by rebuilding. So this is a team that should be focused in the short term. And adding a Frazier and giving up the pieces they did, which aren't necessarily star level pieces. I think that made a lot of sense to me, and I would consider that my favorite move of theirs in the offseason. It would have helped last year's team if Abreu had still been a superstar, but in his second season, he sort of settled in as an above-average first baseman, a good first baseman. Do you think there's any bounce back coming, or is that who he is now? I think you're probably talking about a top-10 first baseman. I believe he ranked 12th in true average last season among first basemen, or full-time first baseman, however you want to phrase that. Uh, you know, the thing about him is he doesn't really walk. You know, he has a very, I don't want to say it's a super aggressive approach, but he's a White Sox hitter. So he's, you know, he likes to swing the bat. He'll expand his zone. And while he has very good raw power, the raw power numbers and power numbers just slip to, I think he had like a 209 isolated slugging or whatever. Anyway, it's hard to be a top five first baseman offensively right now unless you're a well-rounded hitter. You know, you have Joey Votto, you have Cabrera, Paul Goldsmith, Anthony Rizzo, there's four right there. You have to hit for average, walk, and slug in order to be a top five or a superstar level for Stinson right now. So I think he falls more into that six through ten range. Uh, you know, I think he's going to give them all the power production they would like from first base. But until the approach changes, you know, I have my questions about whether he's going to be that top five level. And I would say the weirdest thing about his season is that he was really bad against left-handed pitchers. 
And, you know, with that profile, you would assume that he would eat lefties, and he didn't. He was very, very bad against left-handed pitchers. So that's something to dig into. You know, can he just not recognize change up out of the hand, or, you know, is there something else going on there? It's just not what you would expect from that profile. He had such a strange rookie year. I mean, a, an amazing rookie year, but he had, as you recall, he had that first half where he had just massive power. He was, you know, he had 29 homers in the first 82 games. He was slugging 630 through the first 82 games. And then he, uh, and then in the second half, he had almost no power, but he hit 350 and competed for the batting title and had a 420 BABIP. And it was sort of super weird. It was almost like, it was like it was almost like he was doing like peak Miguel Cabrera in the first half, and then like later Miguel Cabrera in the second half, and it was hard to kind of figure out like okay, so is he just a guy who can f- flip the switch and do whatever he wants, uh, or is he one or the other? Was one of them an anomaly? And then so then did 2015 resolve that at all? I mean, is is he either of those hitters? Is he really just a blend of them, slightly diluted? What is he? Let's say he's a blend, but you know I don't know if I would go with one to the extreme or another. Uh, yeah, I don't think he's peak Miguel Cabrera because peak Miguel Cabrera is like arguably the best right hand here of a generation. So I would say he's probably just a blend where he's an above average first baseman, doesn't have Miguel Cabrera's approach. So about maybe you know I don't know. I wouldn't say he's. I don't think he has Miguel Cabrera's hitting ability. Does, might have his power, but I don't think he has his you know, feel. Now, that's not to say Abreu is, you know, blind slugger who pulls the ball constantly, but, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable putting him on that Miguel Cabrera level. So do you think that the the weird first half, second half split in his rookie year was just a fluke, that it was just a sort of strange distribution of events, but not particularly enlightening about his his style as a player? You know, it depends. I didn't watch a lot of them down the stretch, so maybe he was nursing something, and that's why he made the change, or maybe it's just a small sample size, and we're, we're way, way too much into it. So I don't know. I know it's a cop-out, but I'd have to really dig a look at that before I feel comfortable saying that's definitely a philosophical change that's going to last remain to this season. What do you expect from Rodon this year? I would expect a lot of improvement. I know the big concern of him is that he walked a lot of hitters. But if you look at his split, five per nine during the first After the all-star break, that walk rate dropped to about 3.6 per nine. And it kind of reminds me of what David Price did when he came up. Now, I'm not saying that Rodon is going to turn into a strike thrower like Price, but when Price was just coming up in 2009, he made nine starts before the all-star game. And he walked more than six batters per nine. After that, after the break, it really dropped, and he looked like top, you know, the top uh, collegiate arm in the draft, the number one overall pick. Now, Rodon wasn't the top overall pick, but he has that kind of pedigree where you look at his fastball, you look at his slider, you can start thinking top of the rotation arm. He just needs to sure up the command and the control. And, you know, if you go on the bank on a pitching coach doing it, I suppose we say this about a lot of pitching coaches these days, but, you know, Don Cooper... Yeah, he's got a pretty great track record. So I would guess that he's going to develop into at least a mid-rotation arm, probably more because, you know, the stuff's so good and he was just a baby. You know, he barely finished, what, a year? I think he was just barely a year removed from college, if that, when he debuted. So we're talking about a really, really young professional here with dynamic stuff and all the pedigree that and coaching that points toward him being 
you know, a potential front of the rotation monster in the long term and at least an average starter in the short term, in my opinion. All right. So we're a few years into the Rick Hahn era and right. it's kind of hard to remember now, but I mean, Rick Hahn was like a number one GM prospect before he became the GM of the White Sox. He was turning down offers and interview opportunities everywhere. He was he withdrew his name from consideration from the Cardinals job before Mozeliak got that. And he declined to interview for the Pirates job before Huntington got that. So you can imagine many alternate pathways that Han's career could have taken, but he ended up staying. He's with the White Sox. And of course he came into a tough situation, I think. And Kenny Williams is still there. So it's hard to draw a line between the Kenny Williams era and the Rick Han era. But is it possible to say anything about how he's done so far or does he have any sort of style that distinguishes him from the way Williams ran the team, assuming Williams isn't still running the team? I would say that the problem with Hans era is I think he's handicapped by his ownership because, well, let's put it this way. Most of the time when you're trying to rebuild a team, which is I think what we could say the White Sox were doing when Hans took over, you either have prospects or you have money. You know, you're going to use one or the other, either develop the prospects or trade them in order to rebuild the team. Well, the White Sox didn't have any prospects. So Han had to lean on the money part. You know, they had that first good year of Robin Ventura. And then since then, it's been, I guess you would say, a failure to live up to expectations, especially last season. So, you know, Han's had to uh, throw some money out. You know, he did it with Melky and LaRoche and so on and so forth. And, you know, he would look a lot smarter if those guys had just hit last season. Instead, we're sitting here talking about, well, you know, what has he done? You know, is he... Did he overplay his hand by staying in Chicago or whatever. I just think he's been handicapped by the situation and he had some rotten luck on LaRoche and Cabrera and, you know, maybe you say, well, he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have traded for Justin Larger. But, you know, at the time we were all feeling it. We were all saying, okay, you know, this team's going to be a lot of potentially uh, American League Central contenders. So, you know, it's hard for me to sit here and say a definitive thing about Hahn. I think he's made some pretty smart moves. And again, I love the Fraser trade and the Lori trade a lot. Uh, has he had his head scratches? Yeah. Um, but, you know, you look at this offseason, they've been focused on upside and I think maximizing their core's window. So with the decision to go with Austin Jackson instead of, you know, anyone in that top of that outfield market is really puzzling and it just doesn't fit with the rest of the winner. So that leads me to believe that Reinsdorf is, I don't want to say being cheap or anything, but it leads me to believe that he's not comfortable, you know, giving that extra five to ten million this season to make this team really I don't know if they'd be the front runner in the central, but they'd be pretty close to it, I think. Now death's going to be a problem. I don't know if they're going to be able to get through the season with the amount of health they need in order to win the central, but you know, you add Fowler or Borden or whoever in place of Jackson, I think you're talking about a pretty good team and one that has a legitimate chance at the division. Now, you know, we're talking about Jackson and can that Latos do this or that and I don't know. I just think he's been he's been handicapped by the situation he inherited. But it's the one he picked, like you said. He could have went to St. Louis or Pittsburgh, you know, had he gotten had he gotten the job. So I guess he picked his bed. I just you know, I'm not ready to put him to rest. So as a promising general manager, I just think we're uh, you know we're letting the circumstances dictate how we feel about his job. And I think he's done okay. I just think he could have done better with a different ownership group and a different set of prospects. But that's why the job was available to him, I guess. So the White Sox have one prospect on the top 101 this year, 
and a couple that are on the fringe, but the ones that are on the fringe are pitchers. Tim, An- Tim Anderson is the one. He's number 19. He is a hitter. He is a position player. And I was just skimming through all of our top 101s going back to 2007. I don't think I missed anybody, but it's not just that the White Sox haven't developed a valuable hitter. They haven't really even had any hitters ranked near the top of the prospects. There have been some guys down at the 90s. There was a, other than Beckham, uh, there were a couple of guys uh, in 2007 and 2008 who were like around the 50s or 60s. So Anderson seems to be the highest position player prospect they've had since Beckham. Will he snap the streak? Are you a believer in him? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not a prospect guy, so I'm not going to be able to tell you every little thing about him, but every, you know, every report I've read, every person I've talked to believes he's a legitimate, you know, first division caliber uh, prospect. So, yeah, I believe in him as a prospect and as a potential starting shortstop here in the short term. You know, I think he'll be up, I mean, he could be up by the all-star break, if not earlier. Of course, that's partially because they don't really have a great alternative. But yeah, I believe in him as a prospect. Well, then, <clears throat> good job writing the essay just in time. <laughs> Rick Hahn still, I think, has the shortest Wikipedia page of any major league general manager. It's a very Midwestern Wikipedia page. I think he, he must have like a White Sox intern assigned to monitor it and make it more modest if it starts to, to get too long. David Stearns has a longer Wikipedia page and he's been a GM for about five minutes and he's been alive as long, you know, about two thirds as long as Rick Hahn. but more information on him on the internet. Very low profile, Rick Hahn. I guess, I guess we know what Stearns did during his Google time with the Astros. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, we end with a win total projection. So give us yours. 83, I guess. I'm not so confident in their death. I think they have a great core. I think they have a chance to be pretty good, but I don't want to bank on their health. And I don't think they have the prospects to really upgrade at the day one. So I'd say 83. All right. Well, everyone can find RJ writing at Baseball Prospectus and also on Twitter at RJ Anderson with underscores between those those words. You want to make sure you get the two underscores or you might end up with a completely different RJ Anderson author. Thank you, RJ. Well, she's better. Yep. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right, so that's it for the first segment. Stay tuned after the break, and you will hear George talk to Dan Hayes of CSN Chicago. But when the waves come rolling in, then I won't turn the tide. Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Prospectus. Joining me now is Dan Hayes. He covers the Chicago White Sox for CSN Chicago. You can follow him on Twitter, at CSN Hayes. Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Was the biggest disappointment for the White Sox last season and the reason they didn't make the playoffs that seemingly all of their offseason moves that on the surface looked like they were going to be significant upgrades, those just never manifested into actual on-field production for the team? Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair to say. You look at what Adam LaRoche was doing, having the worst season of his career. Melky Cabrera had a, a horrible May and early part of June and, and really didn't look like the guy they signed for about $14 million a year. And so you, you look at those two guys, and you know I, I want to say that Jeff Samarja was obviously a little bit of a disappointment. You look at when all those three things happened and, and the way things were happening around the club with outs being given away right and left uh, it, it just 
kind of manifested in this big snowball. They never could stop it from rolling. They never could get out of the way. And they made a nice little run right before the uh, trade deadline and got within a game of 500. But that's the most success they had all season. And, and they fell off at the end. And, you know, it was a very disappointing season, I think, around here, whether you're a fan, whether you're one of the, talking to the front office guys, talking to players. I mean, it just it never got off the ground once whatsoever it was it was a long long and dismally boring season for them they've made a couple major moves this offseason most notably the acquisitions of Todd Frazier from the Reds Brett Lurie from the A's do these two pickups solve the issues they've had at both the hot corner and the keystone over the past few years I I think that it's going to be a good thing just because Todd Frazier doesn't have to come in and and do a ton I think that you know, I've seen some of the projections, and with the defense he plays, the, the thing they did a great job of last year was played third-base defense from about May 15th on. Connor Gillespie had a really rough start to the season. I think he had 12 errors in 52 games. Beyond that, his positioning was at the bag because he doesn't have a lot of arm strength, so, you know, stuff didn't pass him all the time. And, the, you know, once they got – they went to Gordon Beckham first and they went to Tyler Saladino, but they got virtually no offense out of third base from those guys. The OPSs were were pretty bad, but the gloves were gold glove caliber. And, and so I think that Frazier coming in, he's such a solid defender that he really gives them that presence with a guy who can probably hit 25 to 30 home runs. And, and with that, I mean, I think that's to have both facets of it, offense and defense at third, it's something they haven't had for a long time. They've had 22 guys since Joe Creedy retired or Joe Creedy's last game in 2008. And uh, that's a good thing that, you know, Brett Lowry is another good addition just because when they were at the end of the season, I think they were 30th in OPS at both third base and second base. And Lowry didn't have a breakout season. I don't even think it was, if you look at the numbers, I don't even think it was above average uh, across the board. I think he was like OPS plus just a tiny bit below 100 last year. But he still has 33 doubles. He still hit 16 home runs. And for a team that needs some slugging, they they were the last year was their lowest uh, home run total. I want to say since 1992, they had 136 homers last year. You know, to go from two positions where you add those two guys, they, those two hit 51 combined home runs. The White Sox had 21 homers from those spots last year. So I think those were really necessary upgrades. We'll see about Lori's defense, but I think. You know, the idea is that he should be able to hit enough to make up for anything where he's a little less than average, and I think they can do that. They, they just need to generate offense anywhere. At Baseball Prospectus, we focus a lot on the statistical side of the game, and one of the variables that you can't really measure with any sort of formula or equation or metric is clubhouse chemistry and Todd Frazier is a guy who has talked a little bit about this spring about everybody taking accountability for themselves do you get the sense that he's a guy who's going to come in and set the tone and become a real leader on this team and how important is it to have a veteran presence like that in the White Sox clubhouse well it's funny because they did a good job bringing in guys like that last year guys who were popular in the clubhouse Melky Cabrera on a winning team is known as a leader and it just kind of was masked by the fact that this team was so awful and boring and the offense was just I think they ended up scoring three runs or fewer in 82 times last year and and so you don't really get a chance to enjoy the personalities as a fan base when that kind of stuff happens and Frazier is perfect for this team they needed a little bit more vocal and and he said he's gonna dial it back a little but you know you just see the personality and who he is and I think he's going to find that his personality is needed a little bit. And so, I, you know, he might lay back at the start, but once he figures out that 
there is room for that. I think that should have a nice impact. Uh, you look around, and, and they've done a good job with, with guys. I, I, I really like the additions of Alex Avila and Deonor Navarro for the same reason. Those guys came in, and in the first week, they said more stuff than a lot of players have said in the past. They, they said what needs to be said, and I think that when you add that mix of guys that all have winning and know what those kind of clubhouses are like, it's a very good thing for a team that was in need of that last year. One of the biggest storylines that's emerged with the Sox this spring is the relationship between veteran Jimmy Rollins, who they signed a few weeks ago, and their top prospect, shortstop Tim Anderson. Can you describe for us that relationship and, and how important is it in the grand scheme of things for Anderson's development to have such an incredible mentor around him this spring? Yeah, you heard uh, Corey Seager talk about the impact last year. I went over after the, the day after the signing because the doctors share the same complex as the White Sox, and I went over to talk to Seager about him. And You know, you, you don't know what you're going to get when you go to a different clubhouse. You don't know the kids. And, and Seager was glowing and must have spent five minutes saying how Rollins was amazing and basically answered every question. And, and it's funny, uh, you don't know if a guy's going to come in and make an impact, and he has. I mean, he's been in here, and every eye's been trained to him because he's got the resume. But even though he's 37, he's still working extremely hard to try and win this shortstop job. And I think that alone for Anderson is a, a perfect example, but it's, it goes beyond that. I mean, they, these guys talk about life a lot. Uh, Tim Anderson's uh, he's about to become a father for the first time. And Rollins is, you know, there to answer questions about that, there to answer questions about what it's like once you get to the big leagues, both on and off the field with your family. And it's just a great kind of guy for him to look up to. He's looked up to him as a player forever, Tim Anderson. Um, but now he has a chance to learn from him. And I think that that's great for any young guy. And, and the White Sox, Tyler Saladin is doing the same thing. He, he's just soaking up everything that Jimmy Rollins says. That You know, you look at the positioning on the bag and on tags. You look at how he kind of moves around, how he reads different plays, that kind of stuff. And I think that any it, it's an additional bonus to the fact that Jimmy Rollins might be able to come here and steal that starting shortstop job and give them some, you know, not, not going to blow you away play, but at the same time, it's still going to be steady at a position where they have two very inexperienced guys as of right now. What are the team's expectations for talented Southpaw Carlos Rodon in his sophomore season? We all know the immense upside is there. And in a piece you wrote earlier this week, you actually talked about how Rodon feels a little bit more relaxed this spring and that there isn't all this pressure on him like there maybe was a year ago. Absolutely. You can see it. I mean, he just he's joking a little bit more this year. I think that last year when he came here, it was to win a job. And, and he really was intent to show the White Sox he was ready for the majors right away. So they were talking about how the changeup was a little behind the slider and the fastball, and he goes out against the Dodgers last spring and throws 20 changeups and 94 pitches just to kind of prove who he is and that he can do this. And this year he's got that experience of 140 innings in the majors and knowing, one, the, the latter half of it when he uh, his walk ratio came down the last 50 or so innings. I mean, it was a very impressive adjustment. So he showed that, not only could he survive in the majors, he could adjust to life and, and really become a much better pitcher. I think he had a 181 ERA over his last eight starts. It was 5-2, and two, lowered the walks per nine from about 5.5 to 3.4. And, and, you know, it made such a big difference for him just to be painting the strike zone much more consistently and early in the count. And, and to trust his stuff, too. I think that there's sort of that 
point where he knew his slider is unhittable, but he needs to know that his fastball is there too, and, and he has that trust. So I think that they have some high expectations for him. I don't see him being a 200-inning guy just yet. Even with the 10 innings in the minors, he, he was 150 or 149 in his third innings last year. So I don't see them letting him take that big of a leap, but I still could see him being a 180-inning guy. And if you get 180 innings at what he was more in the second half than the first half, you've got a pretty good pitcher there. Ever since they signed Jose Abreu out of Cuba two years ago, he's been an incredible uh, hitter in the major leagues. And what's been the most impressive part of watching him day in and day out over those past two years? And what is it that makes him such an exceptional hitter? Well, he's a tireless worker. I mean, when he arrived, and he wasn't quite in the shape that they wanted him to be in because he had been out of baseball for over a year at that point. And by the end of spring, he was a lot fitter and, you know, they, he was he's playing so hard out here that he had at the time hurt his ankles because of the desert like he was getting used to the how hard the desert ground was and it's just amazing to see how much time and effort he puts into it he's usually in that cage by seven thirty eight in the morning and they're not hitting the field till nine forty five ten so that the effort goes into it but at the same time his i don't know it, it, he just he punishes the ball it sounds different off his bat than a lot of guys. And it was pretty incredible that he reached that 3,100 plateau again just because of the inconsistency both in front of him and behind him in the lineup. And one thing they tried to do to kind of, at one point, I, I guess, get him some more uh, opportunities was they batted him second a little bit right behind Adam Eaton, who had a really good season after the first five weeks. You look at Eaton's first five weeks, throw him out, and beyond that, he's somewhere around an 850 OPS guy. So they tried to kind of pair those two together. But besides that, you know, nobody was hitting behind Abreu. Nobody's really hitting in front of Abreu, and and yet he still managed to get that that number. And he wasn't he's not a guy that plays for numbers. They just happen for him. And I mean, he it's pretty impressive because he he's a good bad ball hitter. We ran numbers on that, and I think pitches out of the strike zone. He had like the 19th highest slugging percentage in baseball last year, and so he really is not easy for pitchers. I mean, it's hard to figure out where to go with him because. We saw more patience from him in 2014. I think if Frazier's consistent behind him this year, we'll see him a little more selective because he knows he doesn't have to do it all. And I think that's one thing that we saw out of him last year was a little less selectivity just because he kind of had to figure he was the only guy to do things and, and still put up in a remarkable season in spite of all that pressure. We could spend the next hour talking about Chris Sale. (laughs) We're not going to do that, but... (laughs) The one area that I've really been fascinated with with his development has been that changeup and how he's really started to lean on it more, especially against right-handers. How critical has that been, the development of his changeup, into transforming him into one of the truly elite starters in the game? Well, I think it's helped him become way more of an efficient pitcher. It gives him just another weapon because, obviously, he could probably make a pretty good career out of just being a fastball slider guy, but but he knows for the longevity factor that he needed to mix in some more and, and having a soft pitch to go to and one that he is, uses as sort of his crutch. Like he'll, he'll go through the, when he, when he loses his mechanics, he'll throw a change up he's, uh, and, and to get back in track. And I think that's uh, giving you an idea of how far that's come along. And it, it's just a great pitch. I mean, when you can throw a slider that drops off the table, when you can throw a fastball that people want to duck out of the way of, and then you can locate a change up you got some pretty phenomenal weapons, and, and so we've seen that from him, and, and it's been very impressive uh, just how it's come along. And You know, I think that 
as long as there's a defense behind him um, this year, we saw so much last year where the defense just hurt their pitchers. Mm-hmm. He, I think that's what he became a strikeout machine for last year. You know, he set a franchise record with 274. I think with Todd Frazier behind him at third, with with a good defender at second, with even just stability at, at shortstop, because Alexi Ramirez had a great second half. He was one of the best defensive players in the second half, but he was also one of the worst in the first half. That infield just gave away so many outs. And you, I think that Sale probably kind of changed the way he pitched last year just because of that. And so it'll be interesting to see what he can do with a, a defense behind him because I think he's kind of striving for efficiency this year. Jose Quintana is arguably the greatest minor league free agent signing ever. He's thrown 200 innings in three straight years. His ERA during that span is 3.4. Why doesn't he get more recognition nationally? And just how good is Jose Quintana? Because it feels like nobody really talks about him ever. Yeah, I mean, it, he's remarkably consistent. And you'll look at it, and here he is, and maybe the ERA is up to about Three nine right before they head into August or September, and then he puts together a fantastic run to end the season around three four. It's it's just crazy where he's been the last three years. You know, almost hits two hundred on the dot every time. ERA has been between three three and three five every time. And and I think the thing that's most impressive is the reason why people don't know about him is he, you know he's the king of no decisions. I mean, the oh. offensive support. And the lack of it is off the charts for him. He's he's got the most no decisions, and I, I we we keep running over the stats. I mean, it's like it's impossible to have been as unlucky as Jose Quintana. I think that's why people don't know who he is. But the the part that's incredible about it is that despite the fact that he is as unlucky as he is, he never shows it. He he goes out there every time and just makes it a new start and tries to forget about the last one. So. If he's getting killed by his offense and he's giving up, he's losing one nothing, and you know last time out he lost two to one. He does a real good job of just kind of compartmentalizing and and treating this start as the most important one, and it gets him a lot of love from his teammates. Those guys love playing for him. They they appreciate the fact that he never points fingers. He's just sort of this happy-go-lucky guy who happens to be one of the more steady pitchers in baseball, and I think that. If this offense can improve a little bit, I mean, it's a guy that should be winning 15 games annually just based off of the, that production, that steadiness. And you know, I think they'd love more than anybody for him to get some run support so that he gets some of that recognition. Who's someone that's flying under the radar right now this spring that isn't getting a lot of attention, but in your opinion is going to have to play a major role for this team to get back in the playoffs in 2016? I, I think that Adam LaRoche, they, they've brought in so many guys that it kind of takes away the pressure for Adam LaRoche uh, coming off of the worst season of his career. But really, they need him to be back to 18 to 20 home runs and bounce back a little bit because he's the only left-handed power stick in that lineup. He got out-homered by Adam Eaton last year out of the leadoff spot, and LaRoche ended up with 12. And if they can get six to eight more home runs and just get somebody to kind of be a threat and extend that lineup, that would be such a huge key for them because – They've got a few guys towards the top to get on base, and I think Melky Cabrera probably uh, will be more the second-half player than he was the first-half player. They, they've done a good job adding just options to this team, but really they could use LaRoche to bounce back. All right, my final question for you, Dan. What is the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with the White Sox in 2016? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I think that Chris Sale getting to the playoffs you know, we've seen this dominance from him, four-time All-Star, four straight All-Star years. And 
everybody, of course, knows about him because they, they've seen him in all-star games and the numbers are so good. that It's scary how good the numbers are, and yet he's never pitched in a postseason game. He came pretty close a couple years ago. They had a three-and-a-half game lead in 2012 with 17 or so to go, and they lost that lead. But, you know, I, I think that the idea that he signed here and and took a, a nice contract, a team-friendly contract, stick around for a long time, and they haven't been able to get him there yet. I think that's something that the White Sox, they, they could have gone so many directions this offseason, but they know how good that young pitching they have is. And they want to get there and they, in part because they want to get Chris Sale there on that spotlight so he can kind of shine. And I think that's a, a really compelling story for this team this year. You know, it, it's going to be hard. Um, they're going to need a lot of things to go right. They're a little thin. Depth-wise, the Matt Lato signing was nice for the rotation, but the possibilities are there at least. I think they're more there than they were last year when everybody was predicting them to win. But obviously, they're they're in a pretty tough division, so need a lot of things to go right. But I, I at least it's in the cards potentially. Dan, thanks once again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. All right, thanks for having me. So that's going to do it for our conversation with Dan Hayes. You can check out his White Sox coverage all season long on CSN Chicago. You can also follow him on Twitter at CSN Hayes. Now let's send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. All right, that's it for the White Sox preview. Thank you to RJ and Dan for coming on. You can send us emails. We're doing an email show tomorrow, so send us emails now at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Sam and I have a book coming out on May 3rd. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. And it's the story of how we ran the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team, last summer. If you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, you can pre-order the book, maybe get it a little bit before May 3rd. You can also look at the nice blurbs we got from various luminaries who liked the book. Nate Silver liked the book. Very smart guy. May have underestimated Donald Trump a little bit, but hey, who didn't? Generally very right about things, and he is not underestimating our book. So go check it out. If you like this podcast, you'll like the book. You can also rate and review and subscribe to our show on iTunes. And you can support our sponsor, The Play Index, at BaseballReference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you subscribe to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back with emails tomorrow. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. We is Chicago.